0: will be in John chapter 2, if you'd like to turn there. Yesterday was kind of a snow day. Did you get to take a break a little bit, I hope? We got to take a break. Snow days are nice because you have things planned and then you just can't do them. And it just feels good. yesterday... I was sitting inside my house, and I was looking out the window, and it, the snow was coming down just right, and Christmas music was playing. It just makes the snow better when Christmas music's playing, and we had a fire going, and uh, Army Navy game on, <laughs> and then uh, went out and got a Christmas tree last night in the snow. It was awesome. Yesterday, I'm just sitting on the couch with one of my sons, and my wife brings me hot chocolate with whipped cream and like peppermint crumbled on top. Like, when does that happen? <laughs> and it was in an Eagles mug. I mean, it was just perfect. It's just perfect. Now, any one of those things is good. Like, I'll, hot chocolate is good, but hot chocolate in snow is better. You know, a fire is good, but a fire with Christmas tree is better. Uh, you add these things up, and they become more meaningful. So, by themselves, they have meaning, and they're perfectly fine by themselves. But in when brought together, there's it's sort of like a two plus two is five. There's like a, a greater meaning when they you sort of coordinate them all into the same moment. And I have a sense that today the teaching in the Bible is one that we have studied, or if you've read it before, you've read it by itself, and you've processed it by it's, your, yourself, or by itself. and by itself, it has meaning. It's, it's coherent, it's internally meaningful. Uh, but my hope today would be to um, actually connect it to a, its partner. and uh, the hope of a, a greater sense of meaning would come out of it. So in John 2, last week we did the wedding at Cana. That was uh, Jesus' first miracle in the Gospel of John. John he calls miracles signs. But Jesus at this wedding turns water into wine. Um, and it's a strange miracle for many people. It's, it's very common when Throughout preparation for that Sunday, I'd, it would come up in conversation, and someone would be like, oh yeah, I've always wondered about that one. Or I've always struggled to make sense of that one, because of the signs in John, it's maybe the most strange that uh, that the power of God would be leveraged to make a celebration go better, or to spare some people from embarrassment, maybe, it seems lavish. I used the word "wasteful in the first service, and I went, somebody said, no, don't do that." And they're right. God doesn't waste anything. But the miracle I'm, so it's not wasted, and that's what's strange about it -- is the miracle is lavished on somebody there's no compelling no one's no one's lame and gets healed there's no one starving and gets fed there's you know it's not that there's a war and all of a sudden there's peace he turns water into wine to make a a celebration go really well it feels a little bit i'm going to say this word again this is a word that's wrong just like wasteful but it's wrong but it's in the right it's right which is it feels uncharacteristic of Jesus in some ways. Uncharacteristic. Just not like the other things he's done. Well, well, today there is, there's there's a, a story that comes right after it that is in some ways equally strange, equally uncharacteristic of Jesus, equally by itself, meaningful but troublesome. And I, I think that, what we're going to do is we're going to look at it, we're going to study it, we're going to get to know it, and then we're going to, we're going to allow these two narratives to sort of hold hands with the hope, I think, of, ah, yes, that's what, that's what John is at work at doing for us in the Word. So let's go ahead and look. It's going to be John chapter 2, verse 13, and it's a very different sort of moment. Let me read about four or five verses. This is what it says. The Passover of the Jews was at hand. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. For the Jews, the temple is the most holy place to go. There's only one temple at the time for the Jews. And your average Jew would not regularly go there. They would go there very rarely actually and this was one of the most holy days of the year and it's one of the days that many many Jewish men in particular would go to the temple with an offering or a sacrifice. That was the standard. In fact, many people traveled, many Jews from scattered throughout the known world would pilgrimage back to Jerusalem at this time. Not all of them, but many of them. If you had the means, this would be the time to travel. This, you might see this is their Christmas. This is the time to sort of spend the money, to, to come back home, be with family. And many of them, when they would come home, they would bring some sort of offering to the temple. You might think of something happened throughout the year in their life, would move them to bring sacrifice, whether it was an area where they're thankful, whether it was an issue that they're prayerful, this would be the time when they were able to come to the temple. And what you see here is that on the temple grounds, not in the sanctuary itself, but in the larger grounds, booths and tables were set up to make it easier for them to do that. If somebody's coming from Italy They're not going to put an ox on the boat. They're not going to pay for their way and the ox's way to get all the way here. They're going to redeem. They're going to redeem the value of the ox when they get to Jerusalem. And what it appears as though an area of the temple, the temple grounds had been set aside over the years for this to happen. And this area where this is taking place is the outer court of the temple. It's part of the temple. Okay, so When we say outer court, I don't want us to think, well, it's not the temple. It's the temple. It's the outer court of the temple. It was a place called the court of the Gentiles. And this is where uh, people who were seeking God could come. So if you were not a Jew, you could never go into the inner court of the temple. You just could not go there. But this is where someone who was caught by God who had heard the teachings of Yahweh and thought to themselves, that's true. And throughout, by the way, throughout the Roman Empire, one of the reasons Judaism was legal was because it, had, it was so different than the Roman or the Greek religion of just make offerings to gods and temples. There was such a moral distinctive about the Jewish faith that many, many Greek and Roman people would be, they were called God fears. They were drawn to God. They were drawn to this religion. And God had always been anticipating it. When he had the, the temple, there's a huge court to welcome them, 35 acres to welcome the world. Come and worship. And it's in this area that these tables are set up. And something about it is wildly offensive to Jesus. Something about this marketplace in the temple ignites his anger in a way that we don't see anywhere else really in this ministry of Christ. This is what is strange about this. Many people that I visit with about this passage say this this is uncharacteristic or this is a strange depiction of Jesus because it doesn't surface in the life of Christ. Him getting this, it's angry the word, him reacting so viscerally to what seems to be a fairly small thing. In fact, it's a little bit if you want to be clear about the crime or the sin in this matter, it's actually less obvious than it seems because for one, bringing sacrifice everything being sold that's mentioned here in John is for religious purposes. So there were no booths set up here selling, you know, glow in the dark necklaces or Water bottle fans or airbrush T-shirts. Right? This is not Gatlinburg. This is it's not. There's not markets of junk. It's religious. Everything here is going to be used for sacrifice. So that's the first thing. That's actually what's wrong may be less obvious. And I will say this: <clears> the <throat> in the law of the Jews it's permissible by the lord for you to not bring an animal if you're if you're coming a great distance just like i shared you could bring money and redeem that money for an animal when you got when you got to jerusalem so that's not seen as foul play necessarily and you might think well maybe there maybe there's like unrighteous financial gain taking place here. Maybe this is like a a racket. And it might be. uh, It might be. In the other gospels, a very similar situation like this is told in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, in which Jesus does not say, you have made my father's house into a a house of trade, but rather he says you've made it into a house, of a den of robbers or a den of thieves. And that sort of inclines us to think that maybe the financial exchanges taking place were sort of unrighteous in their rate of exchange. But here in John, that, that's not what Jesus is dealing with. In John, it's about, hey, it's, it's a house of trade is what gets him so, I don't know, fired up. He fashions a whip. Not like an Indiana Jones whip. But think like a herder's whip. You know, he he shoes out the animals. I mean, he throws tables. If you're allowed to bring these things, if they're selling religious things that you're allowed to buy, then the discontent of Jesus can't be in what's being purchased or even why it's being purchased. It must be in where it's being purchased. It's the fact that it's being purchased in the temple. More specifically, I think, it's the fact that it's being purchased in the very place that people seeking to know God should be worshiping this court of the Gentiles. There's a sense that this is the very place that somebody who's curious about the Lord would come to learn, and it's in that place that Judaism has sort of made a space for the commerce of sacrifice. I might describe what's wrong this way. This is what I think is wrong, is convenience for the practitioner of the faith is coming at the expense of the sacred for someone else. But to those people who are in, okay, to the Jews who are allowed to go to the inner court, to those people who are allowed to make offerings and sacrifices, to them, it's more convenient. It, it, it sure beats having to go find an ox somewhere in town or a dove or something, right? It's, it's one-stop shopping. It's right here. It's on your way. It's, it's so convenient. But it's taking place in the sacred space of those who are trying to know the Lord, those who maybe are not allowed to go further. It's taking the space of a place preserved for prayer, What's convenient for one, and that one is the one who's already in. What's convenient for the person who's in the faith, in this case, is coming at an inconvenience to someone who's on his way. I think about it this way, you know, there's a sense that Christmas is for the Christian, we tell the story, we put up the nativity scenes, we write the songs, we have, we have a, right, it's, it's our holy day. And that's true, but there is a very real sense that Christmas is for the earth. It's for everyone. In other words, it's a story that should be, right. not only should we have a richness in its practice, Right? The way we recollect it as followers of Jesus. But for those around us and among us who are seeking God, they know, right? They're, they know that this is our holy day. Their antennas are up a little bit. And this is a time when they may, the story is just as much for them. That Jesus Christ came to the earth to save all of us from our sins is something that should be said in the court of the Gentiles as much as in the inner court. And in this case, the message out is being muted or corrupted or twisted to make it easier for some of the, some of the faithful to worship. I, it, it makes me wonder, are there things in our faith that should just not ever get too easy? Is there, is there a danger when worship becomes so convenient? When, is there thoughtfulness as a church or as a people of God and not overly accommodating those who are already in the faith Out of care for those who are trying to know Him, it's. I feel like I can ask that question. I feel like trying to get more practical starts to just ugh, it. It unravels so quickly. You know, I'll talk about overly convenient faith. You know, um, I have my Bible on my phone. So convenient. It's so convenient. And so I will look at it at convenient times. I imagine that case is true with some of you. Do you find that now you're only accessing it when it's convenient? There's a sense of when something becomes so convenient, then you only do it when it's easy. I mean, I would think even if I try to have like an earthly if I try to role play this account out for myself, I think my uh, my ability to worship at the temple, I guarantee you would be more if it was a, if it was a, a sheep that I raised and I walked it all the way there if I to bring that all the way from my home from the, where my life takes place, to bring it all the way there, would certainly be certainly be more worshipful for me. Then showing up and sort of swiping my credit card and out pops a sheep, like one worship unit, delivered, right? And I'd be, And I would just go, "You know, and hand it to the priest, and they'd go, "Boot You've effectively worshipped today." So where does worship? It's one thought that's in my mind, where does worship start for you? Does it start when you get in this room or when you get to the building? I mean, I understand, like, the car with kids can be so disruptive. But it does not mean it's not worship. I mean, from the moment your eyes wake up on, like, the Lord's day, and this is a, this is a weekly pilgrimage, okay? So this, isn't, this is not Passover. But even in the weekly meal with the Lord, you know, we, I try to pray at dinner Saturday night, Lord, because that's to me when my Sabbath is beginning. Lord, bless tomorrow. Bless it. I don't want it to be so convenient. So punctiliar. So, and I think that someone who's seeking the Lord, who's trying to understand God, can get confused with that confused with somebody who's not in church when they're outside the building and all of a sudden they're in and all of a sudden we're worshiping and all of a sudden it's supposed to be meaningful and all of a sudden we're saying, Jesus, your name is like honey on our lips. When 25 minutes earlier, we weren't. I Jesus sees this sight he sees the, the space of holiness preserved for the world to know his goodness has been corrupted by a practice of making their religion more convenient. And he reacts. The fact that sheep and oxen would take the place of prayer shows how the religion's flipped anyway, right? God God himself says, I'm not that hungry. I don't really desire these animals. What I desire is a contrite heart. That's what the Lord desires, is a prayerful heart that bows before the Lord. And when you're claiming real estate for people to be prostrate before God, so that they can issue him an ox that he's not really going to eat, You've got it backwards. And Jesus sees this and he reacts. And the Jews, the Jews in, by the way, in the Gospel of John represent sort of the the opposition, okay? The prevailing leading forces of opposition. And this is what they say in verse 18. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. There's a challenge here, right? The the Jews, the Jewish authorities challenged Jesus for a sign. Why do they challenge him for a sign? Because he's behaving in a way, he's exercising authority in the house of God. That's something that only, only a Messiah would do. Only a prophet might do. So they're seeing the authority that Jesus is exercising. And so they're saying, validate your authority. Based upon what credential do you even have the right to do this? This would be in a convenient moment. You think this would be the time for Jesus to turn water into wine. He would say, bring me urns to give a sign. Or this, is this, this would be the moment for him to raise somebody from the dead. This would be a a great moment for a sign. Jesus does give them a sign, but it's a distant sign. It's a sign that they can't connect, right? It's mysterious. In fact, John even has to work it out for us. John has to say, listen, he's not talking about the physical temple. He's talking about his body. And then John even admits, we didn't get it. Because he says, after Jesus was resurrected, the disciples remembered back to when he said this, and they went, aha, in belief. Right, the sign that Jesus offers is down the road. I mean, so it certainly is a, is a sign, but in the moment, it does nothing for the person who has no faith. I think in this world, there's, there's, so there's folks who are easy believers. I don't mean they're gullible. I, I sort of feel like I was raised this way. Never had, I never once had a hard time believing in God. Like, things have happened that I don't like in my life, but I turn to God and I complain to him about it. It never, faith was just sort of an easy thing. And then there's people, I don't know how many of what, this is just some categories, and there's folks who sort of live in unbelief and need help out of it. You know, there's sort of like a There's a skepticism in their blood and the Lord has to work with them to bring them to believe. And one's not better than the other, I suppose. I suppose to believe without seeing is more blessed. But then there are those who no manner of signs are gonna do anything to bring them to faith. Their worldview, their way things are, is so concrete and rigid that you couldn't do anything to convince them. And I think the Jews are like this. They're set in their ways, these Jewish authorities. They're trapped. And even if Jesus were to have done a sign there, they would have dismissed it or twisted it. There's times he does signs through the gospels and they go, well, that's the devil. In John 11, in the 11th chapter of this gospel, he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead, It's a public sign that the whole countryside outside Jerusalem hears about. Everybody knows about it. He was in the tomb for four days, and Jesus calls him out to life. And there's a buzz. And there's such a buzz that do you know what the Jewish authorities say? The chief priest, it says this in, in John 12, the chief priest then begin to plan a way to plot the death, the murder of Lazarus so as to stifle the excitement of Jesus. If that's what you would do to the sign, to a sign of Christ, what is worth giving them right now? And so I think Jesus responds to them kind of almost in a parable. I mean, in a, in a way that's mysterious to someone who's not seeking. You want a sign? Tear this temple down, and in, in three days, I'll raise it. And he's speaking of himself. He's speaking of his own resurrection. He's saying, at my resurrection, I will be the epicenter of all worship. Just, just think about that for a second. Upon my resurrection, when I am standing again, after being crucified, when I'm back standing again, I I am the sole place in which God is met. That's what he's suggesting. It reminds me a few weeks ago how he says, and you'll see angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man, which hearkens to, to Jacob. And What did Jacob say? Surely the Lord is in this place. Surely this is the house of God. And Jesus taking that and saying, I am the house of God. I'm Bethel. I'm house of God now. He's doing the same thing here. Destroy the temple. And in three days, I'll raise it again. I will be the house of God. In this narrative, he's coming to people who should know how to worship. He's coming to people who should know how to seek God. He's coming to people who, above all people on the face of the earth, should know that God's promise is supposed to extend to all the nations and yet they have co-opted the court for the convenience of their own religious transaction. It needs to go away and rise again in the person of Jesus Christ. Now this account is Coherent by itself. It has its own meaning by itself. And Jesus is uncharacteristic in it by itself. You know, you, people read this and they say, wow, man, I don't know what to do with this angry Jesus. Or with this Jesus who's so concerned about holiness. Think about this. If Jesus is the temple, and if we, by extension, is the church, these words are given to us. We're the body of Christ. We're the temple of the Lord. That means that Jesus right now is every bit as concerned with the holiness of the temple. He's concerned about how you and I engage with him, how we approach him. He's not less concerned. This was not like a bad day for Jesus He's just as concerned now. I mean, there's hardly ever a time when I'm approaching just personally with the Lord, where I'm approaching the Lord, where I'm not mindful of the fact that I'm not worthy to approach the Lord. Like there's something wrong with me or there's a sin that I've done that's in my memory or there's something that, there's a way that I know he would like me to be that I'm not yet. Like my sin, like the psalmist, is ever before me when I go to the Lord. And in some ways, when you take this account, it should be. There's some sense. It's not that Christ in me wants me to be holy. He's white-hot zealous about turning over everything in me that's not his. He's discontent with the clutter in my court. He wants to purge it. He doesn't just want it just to slowly migrate out. He wants to throw it out. And by itself, that's, you find this all through the scriptures. But I don't, really, I don't think it's intended to be by itself. I think that the second chapter of John, the wedding at Cana, this uncharacteristic version of Jesus that story and this story are meant to be sort of held together because they are almost opposites. They are, you could hardly get more contrasting. And they're right, They're right beside one another. In fact, many scholars, this cleansing of the temple in every other gospel, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, takes place at the end of his ministry. It's as though John grabs this thing and says, but it fits perfectly right here. And he puts it at the beginning. He takes this account and he puts it right with this wedding. Just think, in the wedding... The wedding represents all the teachings of Jesus. How he eats with sinners and he walks with tax collectors, and right there's a grin on his face, and he's glad that the the celebration's going well. In fact, he wants it to go better, and it's just this outpouring of love and grace and kindness. It's the passages of Scripture. No more do you call me teacher, for now I'm your friend. No more do you call me master or Lord, I'm your friend. There's this warmth in the wedding of Cana and this humbleness in the wedding of Cana. He's not just—he's doing that to people who deserve it. He's doing that in a backwater town at a country wedding. He's going to people who don't deserve it, just the, the low, and he's going to the low, giving them this rich wine, this great love, and this kind friendship. You have one verse in between, he says, and he went down to Capernaum, and then the next verse is, and he went up to Jerusalem. And you find, among those who should know, a holy intolerance of Christ about worship. I think it's worth, I think this is the way to think about it. Jesus Christ is the extreme of two extremes. He is more concerned about holiness than we'll ever, ever appreciate in this life. And he's more warm and kind and loving and friendly than you've yet to discover at the same time. He's not just extreme about them. He represents the extremities of opposite extremities. He would enter your home with a warm kindness that I think all of us fail to fully appreciate, the way he wants to be part of our lives and, and, and make things better, make things overflow and bring joy. Those things are deeply in his nature. And he has about us individually a continual intolerance and desire to ferret out the littlest thing that's wrong with us. And I think they sit together because otherwise we teach them lopsided. Right? Sometimes in an attempt to talk about Jesus' love, we're like, oh, I hope someone doesn't look at this narrative, the cleansing of the temple. Or sometimes when we talk about the holiness of Jesus, we ignore or downplay. And I, I think John's putting to say, no. He is both extremities at the same time. This Christmas... we all have our traditions and our, our sort of perspectives I don't think it's the Lord's desire to put a wet blanket on your Christmas joviality to say we now with a somber voice need to talk about the gospel I think he wants you to celebrate and celebrate him I think all of all the life that's found when families come together with joy and even things just the uh, all the things that we know and aspire to in the Christmas image, okay? Because I know we don't all have it and we don't all have it equally. But that image, there's there is a holy goodness in friends and family coming together in joy and in love. And I think the Lord would John chapter two, verses one to 11 would say he would that that would be better. And in a world, certainly at Christmas, we know how the religious marketplace can get crowded out with the material. I think we would at the same time know that Jesus yearns with zeal to have his name made known right now that he would, particularly for those who are of us who are in the faith, that he would have us to say, do not, in a spirit of holiday convenience, ignore the fact that this story is for others also. It's for the world. It's my prayer this year that we celebrate well and that we worship well. At the same time, not at expense of one another. Let's pray, Lord. You are more of many things than we can imagine Lord we we can't we cannot fully describe you You knew us at our birth you knew us at our conception and you offered to be with us in death you show up on so many extremities opposite extremities Lord in our womb we were known and you will bring us from the grave in our joy you're with us and you are holy and reverent I pray Lord that in our life and in our circles and where we come and go through different phases, whether it's from celebration to sobriety, Lord, that in all those things we know that you have, you're fully present. Help us, Lord, not to pursue this holiday as though it is not a holy day. May we be thoughtful of those around us. make space for them to know you. And we pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.